Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Next month will mark the one-year anniversary since Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's been one year since many Americans lost their right to access an abortion. Statistically, most people know someone who will receive an abortion at some time in their life. My guest today is the author of the beautiful new book that brings depth to the conversation. Hannah Matthews is an abortion doula and author of You or Someone You Love. Thanks for joining us today, Hannah. How are you? Thank you so much, Ali. I'm doing well. How are you? You know, I'm back in action. I had COVID last week and it was not uh, a pleasant experience, Um, but it did give me a lot of time to read. So I read, you know, some really fun fiction from my friend Natasha and I got to reread your book and dive into your book again. Um, And it is a, a beautiful collection of stories and it's it's heartbreaking and astonishing and was so exhilarating to read. I felt like you brought um, so much of this issue to life in a context in which I think abortion is one of the most misunderstood medical procedures to ever exist. Hannah, what did it feel like for you to to create this book um, and and what what has been the reaction thus far to to the stories that you're telling? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the kind words. Um, You know, I always say the only abortion expert, the only expert on an abortion is the person having that abortion. Um, And so the process of writing this book really, really reaffirmed that for me. Um, And just it was such an honor to, you know, really sit down with and speak with and share space with so many different people who have had abortions in so many different circumstances. And it really just, um, you know, re-motivated me to kind of help everyone understand that when someone says to you, I had an abortion or I'm going to have an abortion, that could mean almost 8 billion things, right? Like that could mean all kinds of different things. And so, you know, we've really flattened abortion to be this kind of one political concept or one, you know, medical process that we think we know what it is, but abortion is so many different things depending on the body and the life it's taking place in. If you want to share your abortion story, join the conversation about abortion. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. We would love to hear from you um, because I think part of what this book does really well is it educates and it informs. And I agree with you completely. Abortion has been flattened to be about whether or not somebody wants to be pregnant. Um, and 
the the truth is is that when you have kind of an expansive relationship to people who experience pregnancy you understand that abortion comes up in a lot of different circumstances as something that can be life-saving life-changing very medically necessary um you we've seen legislation that is so out of touch with the reality of pregnancy that it you know there was uh, i want to say ohio had a law where if you had an atopic pregnancy so pregnancy that takes place outside of the uterus is not a viable pregnancy cannot be salvaged um that you had to you know try to coordinate a way to insert that pregnancy into the uterus um before termination of of that pregnancy was allowed what did what are you hoping that you do with this book in terms of giving people more accurate information around what abortion is like for people and the circumstances with which in which a person may pursue an abortion or need an abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So I think many, many folks, um, you know, even and maybe especially those people who would call themselves pro-choice or who believe that abortion should be legal in some or most circumstances carry a lot of misconceptions about, you know, who's having abortions and when and why until someone in their own life needs abortion care, um, which, as you know, the title of the book implies is pretty uh pretty universal experience that either you will need abortion care or someone in your life will whether or not you know it um and so i really just hope people understand that you don't need a medical degree you don't need to go to law school you don't need lots of time or money or resources um you just really need to be curious about the human being in front of you who is inviting you to take that step into your own humanity and into a deeper knowledge of you know what that person is going through what's happening in their pregnancy why they need an abortion what the abortion experience they dream of looks like um you know and just to help folks kind of identify take that first step to identify the reproductive justice needs of their own communities um whether that's families in their communities who need diapers and formula or you know folks who need travel funding to get their abortions or other reproductive health care um just to take that step forward and be curious and then that's the starting point and no matter what your political, philosophical, you know, faith-based beliefs around abortion as, you know, that big siloed, flattened word are, um, to just to be, take a step forward into the humanity of everyone around you and understand on a deeper level what is happening for them when they are pregnant, um, regardless of the outcome of their pregnancies. Thank you so much for speaking to that. I want to ask, you know, for for folks, you you do a lot to make people have compassion and understanding and empathy for the folks who are are pregnant and are sometimes, you know, opting for an abortion and are sometimes really met with pretty tragic circumstances that dictate the necessity of an abortion. Did you feel like it was hard to reconcile the compassion you had um, for the pregnant person with, you know, the people who say, but what about the baby? Yeah, I think, um, you know, being a mother myself and loving children and babies and, 
you know, that being a very, very big part of my life, I completely understand and have a lot of empathy for and I think have a pretty good sense of how folks are feeling if they consider an abortion to be, you know, harming or killing a baby. I think, of course, we would all agree that is not something that feels acceptable. Um, But I think that having undergone pregnancy myself, understanding that it's so much more complicated and nuanced than you know, this kind of view that at conception, there is a new person in the world that's not, um, you know, that's not medically accurate, but that also is not really how pregnancy functions in a life. Um, it, It really, I think, helped me to understand that no matter what you believe about your own pregnancy, um, there just is no scenario in which you can tell someone else what is happening in their own pregnancy. And, you know, these concepts we have around life and conception and fertilization are largely invented by the courts. You know, trimesters as a concept was invented by the Supreme Court when they handed down their Roe v. Wade decision. So that's not a real thing. And many, many people in this world don't experience their pregnancies in terms of trimesters or quote unquote viability or these terms that we've kind of artificially applied to pregnancy. So I think that, of course, I really understand, um, you know, the passion and the emotion of folks who have been taught that abortion is murdering babies and children. And of course, who wouldn't be in the streets, you know, horrified and enraged. Um, But I think when it really comes down to it, when you start to kind of ask questions about that argument and that standpoint, you know, for example, there's that famous example of if you are to ask someone who's anti-abortion, you know, there's a fertility clinic that is on fire and they have the choice to save either a crying four-year-old child or a canister of embryos. I think we know as human beings, you know, we do know the difference between Mm -hmm. a child who has been born and who is living on earth with us and the potential for future lives, even if it's the potential for many future children. There is a difference when it comes to our own human um, emotion. And similarly, I would say, you know, folks who are arguing for bans with exceptions for rape or incest, um, you know, first of all, that's not acceptable to me that we would be forcing anyone to prove that they were raped or that their pregnancy is a product of incest to, you know, uh, access an abortion. Uh, right. Yeah. Like I think, but regardless of that um, and how the the exceptions function, I think that then that also is when the murder argument starts to fall apart. Um, so, you know, I just, I would ask folks, I think, who believe that abortion is murder or killing or harm of children to maybe just be a little more curious about where those beliefs came from. Um, because of course it's hard to, you know, get past the emotional response of that. But if you can get past the emotional response and ask a few more questions about why you believe that and, you know, what maybe the complexities and differences really are between different stages of life, then, you know, I think that's a great place to start. 
There has been a lot of conversation about abortion that has been dominated by people who have never been pregnant and who have never had abortions. I have both had abortions and I have three children. Um, It's amazing to me how much of this conversation has been dictated by people who do not know what they're talking about. For you as a parent and as somebody who has witnessed abortion many, many times, um, what does it feel like to, you know, one, elevate your own voice and your own expertise and to know that you're engaging in this conversation and in this political debate with a lot of people who don't have the kind of information you do. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of it for folks who have had abortions of their own um, or who have been pregnant or folks, you know, for whom this is not just academic or philosophical, but is in fact, you know, their lived reality. I always say um, I don't go to dinner parties where I'm on the menu. So Mm -hmm. like where my body is up for debate or my existence is up for debate or my right to parent my children or to have children and not have children, you know, I'm not going to go into a conversation necessarily always where those things are in question to someone else in the conversation because that's not necessarily safe or a good use of my time. Um, So I always tell folks, really protect yourself. Um, Think about, you know, the ways in which you want to engage and the ways in which it feels safe for you to engage, especially, you know, increasingly, if you're not white, if you're poor, if you are without documentation, um, you know, increasingly, it's, it's a very dangerous time to kind of be just open with your own stories. Um, And so I always tell folks to kind of vet the company they're engaging with and not to say there shouldn't be argument and debate. And I think that's very useful. Um, But I think, you know, for myself, I'm going to protect my child and I'm going to protect my body and I'm going to protect my family from the people who don't see those uh, pieces they're worth on the table in the conversation. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Um, We are so fortunate today to be joined by Hannah Matthews, who is an abortion doula and funder. She is a clinic worker, a hotline counselor, and writer. Her writing appears in Elle, Esquire, Teen Vogue, McSweeney's Time, among others. Uh, She's the abortion doula who wrote You or Someone You Love. Uh, what, What you just spoke to in terms of like you have to gauge your safety in a conversation, right? And so as you're talking about this book, as you're talking to to different people who have different perspectives around abortion than you, um, you you have to, you know, maintain space for your own safety and well-being and your own headspace. And simultaneously, you're living in a nation where abortion is... um, You know, it's not just a a conversation we're having at dinner parties. It is a felony right now to have an abortion in Wisconsin. Um, And that is where I live and and where, you know, this this show is being broadcast. So it feels like it is a dangerous time to have this conversation. And it also feels like it's a dangerous time not to be having this conversation. What was it like for you to get people to 
open up about their abortion journey, about their post-abortion lactation experience, about um, the circumstances that, you know, made them want an abortion or made them decide that that was right for them and their families. How did you get people to participate in in telling the story, in part because the stigma around abortion is so extreme and part of the argument for abortion was privacy. Um, And so, you know, now that we're being, you're seeing more and more people kind of talk about what abortion has meant to them um was it was it easy to get people to participate in this book was it challenging what were your kind of ethical parameters for including people's stories in this book yeah that's a great question um and i will say that probably has been the most difficult part of writing the book emotionally and publishing it is um you know, considering and weighing that responsibility at all times for other people's safety. Um, Often someone would say to me, oh, you can use my full name, like use my first and last name. And I would say, I really don't think we should do that. Or, you know, just I would ask people to kind of consider and then come back to me when they're thinking about their own privacy or anonymity. And I think, you know, the answer has so many layers. So I'm white, I'm cis. Um, I live in a high access state. I, nothing I've been doing, um, is illegal. I cannot be really criminalized or prosecuted in the ways that many, many other people doing the same exact things I do every day can be because of their location or because of who they are. Um, and I think we move at the speed of trust, right? And so a lot of conducting the interviews for this book and the research did involve reaching out to folks in the movement who don't have a reason to trust me. And that was really difficult. And I also completely understand um, and will never get my cis white lady feelings hurt when someone says to me like, you know what, I don't really, I don't think you're the person I'm gonna, you know, go out on this limb for either legally or socially or culturally. I don't think you're the person I'm gonna take this risk for. Um, That always, makes total sense to me and I'm always extremely understanding. That being said, I never want there to be a collection of only cis white women's stories because those are the people who are safest to tell the stories um, because that is so far from an accurate representation of what abortion really is, you know, in this country and who is really affected by the bans, but also the lack of kind of really comprehensive affirming care. Um, And so it was a very, um, yeah, there were many sleepless nights. There were many kind of anxiety moments and panic moments. There were many tears shed um, about, you know, who I was choosing to reach out to, who I was choosing to, um, you know, engage with more deeply around their own safety and then how folks were approaching me and having to sometimes turn folks away or say, Ooh, don't share that with me, please on social media. Um, or, you know, don't send that in a text message. Let's, you know, let's find a a safer way. Um, and so, yeah, I do think increasingly it is so important to be sharing information and telling our stories. And it is so important to be disseminating, um, safety information as much as possible. And that's part of the reason why a huge um, section of the book is devoted to the Digital Defense Fund and, um, you know, the folks who are really experts in abortion, privacy and security, especially online. Um, And so that was something I really wanted to 
include is like, hey, no stigma, no shame, but uh, yes, safety and yes, consideration of who's in the room or who could be, you know, getting information from your device. Mm. Thank you so much for for speaking to that. I think, you know, we saw that conversation kind of start up last year when folks were deleting their period tracking apps. Um, I had a group of young people come in and talk about kind of the the privacy online factor. For folks who are just joining this conversation, just turning on WORT 89.9, jumping into your car, sitting down for lunch, you're listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking to Hannah Matthews about her incredible book, You or Some. Someone you love. Uh, this is, you know, these are notes or reflections from an abortion doula. I think doula is a term that's becoming more popular. Um, so I think there's more and more people who are using doulas to support birth or even using doulas to support death. Um, what is an abortion doula? Can you can you talk to us a little bit about what you do as an abortion doula? What's in your bag, which is a whole segment of this book is like abortion is what's in my bag. Um, talk, talk to us about what that work looks like and how long you've been doing it. Yeah, for sure. So I've been working in abortion care for about five years um, and community abortion care or companion work or doula work. Um, you know, a lot of folks no longer use the term doula because A, it's pretty gendered, um, and B, its roots are in ancient Greek, and uh, originally it meant female slave. And so for many people, it's associated with chattel slavery um, in a way that is not great for them and doesn't feel aligned with their values and, you know, the work they're trying to do and how they're trying to show up in the world. Um, For me, not to collapse the meaning of the word, but it really can look (laughs) as many ways as an abortion can look. So sometimes I'll have someone reach out to me um, and just say, hey, I need help funding my roommate's abortion. She needs $700. I have to get her to the bus station. Can you help me kind of crowdfund this or connect me to a local abortion fund who might be able to help or a travel practical support organization? And I'll say, absolutely. And I'll make calls and I'll send emails and I'll do whatever, you know, to get this person their funding. Other times it's like, you know, I'm spending days and days really with someone accompanying them through different steps of their own abortion process. Maybe I'm helping them figure out childcare. Maybe I'm providing the childcare. Maybe I'm holding their baby while they're having their abortion. Um, You know, all of these things. And increasingly, I think, you know, both pregnancy, both being pregnant and choosing to end a pregnancy in this country are radical acts and both carry a lot of danger, especially for poor folks, especially for black folks, especially for trans folks, um, especially for immigrants and people who are otherwise, you know, being surveilled more and more aggressively as they're either entering into a state of pregnancy or leaving a state of pregnancy, no matter what that outcome is. Um, And so a doula can be kind of that barrier between them and maybe the violence of the healthcare system that they're having to interact with between them and law enforcement, between them and an abusive partner or parent. Um, It can also just be kind of that partner who's going to collaborate with them to create the abortion experience that they need and want and help them protect their joy and their autonomy through it all. So someone who's going to advocate for them 
in a room if, you know, a doctor is not respecting their boundaries, things like that. Um, so all that to say, you know, what's in my bag generally is uh, supplies for medical and physical comfort and support. So that can be, you know, painkillers, um, resources like the miscarriage and abortion hotline. So folks can call and speak with healthcare providers if they're concerned about something that's going on or they have questions. Um, you know, tissues, Kleenex, hot water bottles or heating pads, um, extra blankets, ginger ale and saltines for nausea, menstrual pads, um, chucks pads for bleeding, you know, all that kind of stuff and so many more things. And then for emotional and spiritual support, you know, maybe someone really needs to pray. Maybe they really need to do a guided meditation. Um, maybe they need a resource like the Faith Aloud hotline where they can talk with a priest or a rabbi or um, a clergy member and things like that. Um, you know, I like to bring just really, I always say to people, if you've comforted someone you love or someone you know through a breakup or a surgery or a birth or a wedding, you already know how to provide this support, right? You're showing up for someone in any way they need or want you to. And most people already know how to do that if they're in deep relationship and in community with other human beings. Um, and so I'll just bring a lot of things in my bag that you would bring to support someone, you know, through any kind of major life event. I think like part of what you what you do is address the inherent isolation and loneliness that often is experienced during pregnancy, whether you have an abortion or not. Um, and, and I so appreciate you saying like whether you're going to be pregnant and carry a baby to term and give birth or have an abortion in the United States, um, there's a lot of risk involved to your safety and your health and your overall well-being. It is interesting to live in a country where abortion is illegal in a, you know, a large number of, of states at this point at a time when there's being very little done to address kind of the maternal mortality rate. And I think that that says something about the way we feel about people who become pregnant and, and have babies. What what did this book teach you or listening to these stories teach you about the way America feels about mothers and women and pregnancy and birth? Yeah, I mean, it really, um, you know, writing this book, there were so many interviews I conducted with someone about their abortion experience or about the abortion they were not able to get, um, even though they needed or wanted it, but they were denied or turned away. Um, so many of those people, as they spoke with me, just as so many patients at the clinic, um, you know, if I'm if I'm speaking with patients on the phone about their procedure or, you know, something, there are babies crying in the background. There are children in and out of the room. Um, you know, I think it's 59% at this point of women in the U.S. who have abortions who are already parenting one child or more. And I don't think that number accounts for folks who aren't women who are parents um, and having abortions. And it really is so deeply connected both in the way that you need community and you need systems and networks of support maybe the most in your life when you're pregnant and when you're parenting 
um, and in how this country has really abandoned pregnant people and parents and especially mothers. Um, And I think, you know, this is for the same reason I would help someone have an abortion, I would throw them a baby shower and make sure they have the stroller and the clothing and, you know, the diapers that they need, because to me, those people are being abandoned in the same fashion, um, often by their own families and communities, but in a larger sense, you know, by our government. Mm. Thank you so much for for speaking to that. And I appreciate that you talked about kind of the reality of our collective responsibility um, for for pregnancy and children and, and, you know, the the people that we call neighbors, the people that we, you know, share this little world with. But I, I think... You know, when you talk about where we are as like what we can expect from our government, we saw the 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 attempt to get a, a maternity leave or parental leave in the United States fail. Um, so there seems right. to be a lot of pressure for people to have kids and very little commitment to an infrastructure to support kids. There has been an argument that were we to strengthen that infrastructure to support families and kids, to support education, to support childcare, to support parental leave, um, that we would have less abortion without, you know, making abortion illegal. Do you think that we should be aiming to, you know, empower people to have abortions when they want them or to, you know, really reduce the reasons why people would pursue an abortion. How does that how does that work in in your mind? Yeah, I think it's absolutely both, right? So would I have had my own abortion if I knew that I would have parental leave and universal childcare and sufficient, you know, healthcare and education for my children? Would I have had my own abortion if we weren't seeing multiple school shootings every week and mass shootings in public places? Um, And if, you know, an airborne pandemic was not being allowed to kind of run rampant through our communities, I don't know. And maybe not. Maybe I would have had that child instead of or chose to continue my pregnancy instead of having an abortion. Um, I also think that if the goal is to reduce the number of abortions that are being had, that doesn't necessarily align with my values, um, because I think the goal should be to get people as free as possible to actually make the choice. So it does feel like a big problem for me that many people are having abortions, but not feeling like that is the choice they would make if they truly, you know, uh, if reproductive justice were available to all of us at all times. But it doesn't feel like a problem to me that people are having abortions. And so that doesn't feel like kind of a problem to be solved. Mm. Um, Abortion to me is very much a form of birth control. And, you know, when people say, oh, abortion shouldn't be used as birth control, that really doesn't resonate with me um, because I think that kind of belies a really deep lack of understanding or lack of time spent with pregnant people and people who are having abortions. Um, You know, no one is kind of opting casually for frequent abortions instead of other forms of birth control. And so I think that abortion is on the spectrum along with IUDs, other forms of hormonal contraception, along with condoms, along with natural family planning, you know, all these things, along with tubal ligation. And 
all these things need to be available to people. And um, we kind of need to just mind our own business when it's their time to select what form of contraception they're going to use. Mm, thank you so much for, for speaking to that. And I love the the sentiment of like, you can't really you can't really make that sort of decision for somebody else. Like you can't really decide for somebody else whether or not they should maintain and continue a pregnancy. And I say that as somebody who's been pregnant three times and has had a really medically complex pregnancy. Um, and pregnancy is, you know, uh, not not something that turns a person's body into into public domain. Although the objectification of people who experience pregnancy is something I think your book confronts head on over and over again um, by really sharing some of the most complex and intimate details one could imagine in relationship to both pregnancy and abortion. What was it like for you to kind of enter people's worlds and have these really intimate conversations about their experiences, about what happened to their bodies, about how they felt about it, about, you know, their their long term relationship to terminating a pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as someone for whom my own abortion experience and my emotions around my own abortion are so complicated and, you know, so kind of multifaceted. I did not only feel relief and joy after my abortion, but I also did not only feel, you know, guilt and shame and loss and grief. I felt all of these things and I still feel all of these things. Um, and it kind of can change moment to moment and I can carry all of it at the same time. And, I think that a lot of folks really struggle with that. And there's this pressure on both sides of the spectrum. There's this pressure if you're pro-choice, pro-abortion to, you know, consider your own abortion as no big deal, just positive, just easy, um, you know, just simple and straightforward. And as you know, from being pregnant, that is not really how human bodies and human pregnancies work. Um, and so I think people feel a lot of secrecy around complicated emotions they may have or complicated experience they experiences they may have had. Um, but, you know, we can't, we can't shut the door on someone's lived experience of abortion because we're afraid it will contribute to stigma because we're actually further stigmatizing them and isolating them when we do that. Um, and so I think just as everyone should be able to say, oh my gosh, I love my child so much. I'm so glad I had my child. And I had this very traumatic birth experience that was so, you know, so harmful, so negative, all these things, it stays with me, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, so should someone be able to say my abortion, you know, was the right decision for me at that moment. And I had this experience that did not wholly feel good and easy. And it was, you know, it contributed to pain. And I think that is part of the reason why abortion doulas and community abortion care workers are so needed. And even just safe neighbors and friends and siblings and parents who can, you know, be with you and accompany you through your abortion. And that's kind of who I wrote this book for. Um, is just, you know, it's so important that people are not just getting the abortion care they need medically, but the abortion care that they really, that they dream of and the abortion care that 
you know, holds them and affirms them and keeps their body and their mind and their heart safe and free. You write in your book that abortion is hope, abortion is a holy blessing, abortion is indigenous, abortion is Islamic. You you have a very expansive relationship to what an abortion is and what it can mean. Um, I think in a world that has you know, try to oversimplify, criminalize and disparage the people who experience abortion um, or or pursue abortion or have abortions. It It's interesting to see you write about abortion with such reverence and such respect for the people who have abortions. Um it, it made me think you must be really good at your job. You must be a really um, amazing doula um, in, in supporting people who have abortions. And do you feel that because of kind of this current political reality, um, you have more work to do as a doula and that that work is changing, especially as the landscape for who is an abortion provider has changed. So can you talk a little bit about how you kind of define yourself and your role in supporting people who have uh, abortions um, and how you separate that support from actually being an abortion provider? Or is that... Is there is there not a line or difference between you as a support person and you as an abortion provider? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't call myself a provider. I do think, you know, increasingly these lines are going to be blurred as more and more folks are forced to self-manage their abortions or decide to self-manage their abortions. Um, and I also think that increasingly abortion doula work and abortion care work is going to involve caring for people who are not able to have the abortions they need. So, you know, supporting people as they continue the pregnancies that might end in, you know, fetal demise and suffering for their child or might end in medical harm to them, um, you know, might end in their deaths. I think that is really something we're already seeing an increase in and we will be seeing, you know, an increase in further. And I think that really just if we are focusing on the human being in front of us, what is in our power to, you know, help them help, what care is in our power to help them access, um, you know, that is really going to be the focus going forward. And it is going to require more awareness of laws where the person is, um, more ability to step outside ourselves and, you know, not just consider our own safety, but other people's safety in helping us or in us helping them. Um, and it's just going to require really more communication and more openness among the people who are safe to discuss, you know, how people can self-manage their abortions or get abortion care um, in these communities where abortion is being criminalized. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I guess I wonder, do you do you worry about kind of your own safety or your own ability to um you know, get into trouble for supporting people and having an abortion? Have you worried that you could get arrested, that, you know, that folks could could treat your book as evidence of a crime? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think as someone who worries in general, of course, that worry is always going to be there. Um, but I definitely, you know, I have a lot of support. Um, I have a lot of legal guidance. I have um, a lot of confidence that, you know, I am not breaking any laws where I am right now. And I think that, again, my relative safety um, kind of imbues me with the responsibility to take risks where I can. Mm. Um, And so I... I really feel that, you know, it is my job in this moment to not preemptively comply with laws that haven't been passed yet out of fear and to not kind of hide myself away and leave other people, you know, out on these limbs. I think it is really my responsibility to be pushing the boundary as far as I can so that other people can stay safe. Mm. Thank you so much for for doing that and for speaking to that and for writing this, you know, really like heartfelt and important book at a time when I think it just it meant a lot to be able to read you or someone you love reflections from an abortion doula. Hannah Matthews is joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. If you want to join the conversation, you have comments about abortion, you want to share your story, ask questions about abortion, pregnancy, birth, um, an abortion doula's work specifically, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Huge shout out to our our engineer and our producer Jade we we greatly appreciate all that you do to make shows like this possible and I was so happy when you connected me with this book because it felt really timely um, for the things that were going on in my life at the time and things that were going on in the lives of, of people I love um, so huge huge shout out to all the folks who make a public affair possible here at WORT 89.9 FM but a special shout out to our producer Jade um, and our guest receptionist, our our guest engineer Nate, our receptionist Steve, and our news director Sholly Pittman. Uh, I want to get back into the conversation, Hannah, and ask you a little bit about kind of how your your role has evolved over the course of the last five years. So since Roe v. was Roe v. Wade was overturned almost a year ago, how has that impacted your ability to do this work as an abortion doula? Yeah, so I think everyone in clinics everywhere would tell you um, that we're seeing a real increase in fear and confusion, um, which is by design. These laws are designed to be, you know, as confusing and misleading and fear inspiring as possible. And so we're seeing folks who don't know that their uh, the abortion care they need is legal where they are or who are afraid to even Google, you know, how far along am I in my pregnancy or are afraid to ask questions that would help them stay safe and get the care they need um, within the legal parameters that are being imposed on them. So we're seeing a real increase in people who are having to seek abortion care later in their pregnancies um, for many reasons, mostly due to these bans and restrictions and due to their um, restricted freedoms. And that is, you know, 
that can be really difficult. That can add a huge financial burden. That can add time away from their jobs, their children. That can add um, more, you know, a more physically intense uh, procedure or experience and more pain, more suffering. And again, you know, I really think all that is by design. These laws are designed to punish pregnant people, um, whether they're having miscarriages or you know, experiencing complications or whether they're seeking abortion care. So, you know, patients are having a harder time. They're under more stress. They're being met with more barriers, more risks, more dangers. Um, and I would say that clinics and providers and care workers are also under more stress and are exhausted. And, you know, <laughs> we all have our own families. We all are broke and tired and busy. And so I think it has just been very difficult. Um, but I also think that all of us know that we are going to keep showing up um, to, you know, protect every last person that we can and to help provide care for every last person that we can. And so there is, you know, I'm not seeing that energy die down. Mm. I, I so appreciate like both the reality of what you just said and the commitment of the people who are doing this work and supporting people at a time like this. We have a caller on the line who wants to ask, James, how are you doing today? Oh, tall and skinny, enjoying this fabulous Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Ali. <laughs> Thanks so much, James. You wanted to ask a question about how men can help. Uh, do you want to yeah, expand on that? On, yeah, of course, and I don't mean to... Uh, recenter it around the male identified gender and shout out to all the nurses at the UW and all over the world. I love nurses. I'm a nurse and I'm trying to finish some junk up, but I identify as a man and I love, I love caretaking for myself and my brethren out there, children and whatnot and elderly. My question is, are there men who deliver babies like doulas deliver babies? You know, shout out to all the doulas in the town that, that, that create our healthy community here delivering the babies. Uh, how are men uh, supporting reproductive justice these days around here? I'm curious. How are men supporting reproductive justice? How should men be supporting reproductive justice? Thank you so much for your question, James. James, Hannah, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a huge part of why we are where we are right now is because of men's discomfort um, around abortion. And a lot of that is, you know, not necessarily any fault of theirs. It's like they've been really discouraged, you know, kind of like James said, not to center themselves or take up space, which is appreciated. Appreciated. Um, you know, there are definitely men who have abortions because Zembe Murphy-Jackson is an incredible trans man and an abortion storyteller um, who tells his stories on many platforms. So that's a great place to kind of jump in is to ask men who've had abortions, you know, about their own experiences and what they need from other men. But then I would also say pretty much every man who has women in his life or his community has had his life impacted by abortion and he just may not know about it. Um, and so I think that it's helpful for men to speak openly about abortion, to ask questions, to be curious. I think it's helpful for men to speak about how abortion has benefited them in their lives if they know that to be true. Um, often, you know, I had one 
patient whose dad had an abort or his dad's girlfriend had an abortion in college. And that is why um, he was able to go on and have the family he had, including the patient that I was helping. And so he was very open about that. Like, oh, before I met your mother, I had this girlfriend who had an abortion. And that's why I was able to have my career, graduate college and all of that. So things, you know, I think men should be very open in sharing those stories. Um, not, of course, in a way that, you know, infringes on the privacy of the partner they're discussing, but just in a way that speaks to how abortion has impacted their lives as men. I also think um, something that's really useful for men to do and a place that's really great for them to get involved is clinic escorting. Um, if men become volunteer clinic escorts, there often is a huge de-escalation of violence and the way protesters speak to patients going in and out of clinics. Um, you know, they tend to respect a male figure out there on the sidewalk in a way that will often really calm them down and quiet them down. Um, they are not as emboldened as they are when they're speaking to mostly or entirely women. Mm. And I also think um, for folks who don't want to, you know, physically get out there and be clinic clinic escorts, there is such a thing as a digital clinic escort. Um, so you can get involved kind of online in helping people and communities and organizations stay safe from anti-abortion trolls and from security breaches and things like that. Um, and then also really just give money to abortion funds, even if it's $5 a month, you know, if you have Amen. An, extra, an extra bit of money, just, you know, kick a few dollars to a local abortion fund or a national abortion fund. Oh, I completely appreciate the very extensive list of ways folks can get involved. I also appreciate that we do have to talk about gender, right? There is a, a movement to say, hey, not everybody who has an abortion is a woman. And, and I completely appreciate that we're having a more inclusive and expansive relationship with who needs abortion care and how folks identify. Um, and simultaneously, I'm like, I don't think you can have conversations about reproductive freedom without talking about sexism, without talking talking about the role of misogyny and patriarchy um, in, you know, dominating the rights of, of women and dominating the bodies and, and lived realities of, of people who identify as girls and women. Hannah, how do you think sexism is represented in your book um, and in the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, <laughs> you know, sexism it's almost hard for me to write about it, you know, at any kind of like academic distance because, you know, as it does yours, I'm sure it touches every single part of my life at every second. Um, there are, you know, the ways I move through the world and the ways I'm aware of my body moving through space that are, you know, men will never experience. And I do think part of that is, um, considering it being viewed as a sexually viable person or a person who is sexually available, um, and then also being viewed as someone who could be or should be pregnant and bearing children and raising children. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, it is such a struggle for especially women who are already mothers or who are, you know, seen by society as 
women who should be having children. So they're married, they're established in their career, you know, they have the signifiers of class and, you know, all these other things. It can be so, um, it can be such a disconnect for them to be able to step out of that role they've been assigned to say, actually, no, I'm not going to give birth. Actually, I'm not going to continue this pregnancy. Um, And I think that sexism really has buried its roots so deep in all of us um, and our, you know, our ability to untangle womanhood from motherhood is so limited by the messaging we've received that that often is a huge part of, you know, someone's processing of their own decision to have an abortion. Mm, Thank you so much for speaking to that. We have just a little bit of time left and I had one big question left. I wanted you to talk a little bit about, you know, how how people can distinguish an abortion from a miscarriage, because we seem to have a very different reaction to somebody who has a miscarriage in comparison to somebody who has an abortion. Yeah, which is so funny because they are so closely tied. And again, those lines are so blurry. Um, In fact, you know, the medical term for a miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. Um, And so often, you know, sometimes there is a reason to delineate and separate, you know, in medical terms, a spontaneous abortion from an induced abortion. Um, But often there's not because physically and medically, they can be the exact same process. And that actually is something that I always tell folks who are worried about their safety um, if they are seeking medical care after, for example, a medication abortion is, you know, it presents identically to a spontaneous miscarriage or a natural miscarriage. Um, And so these lines are not solid, right? They are very blurry. And even with birth, you know, I have a friend who's a birth doula who always says to me, a birth can turn into a death real quick. That can be, you know, those transitions can happen in an instant and you kind of need to be ready to address that whole spectrum. Um, And so many people I care for have had both miscarriages and abortions um, and have experienced them in very similar ways. Some of them have experienced them in very different ways. But I think that if you are someone who has a lot of empathy for someone who has had a natural miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion, then I guess I would ask you to kind of hold that side by side in your mind with your empathy for someone who has chosen to have an abortion or has chosen to induce a miscarriage. I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. Thank you for answering my questions. Thank you for writing this book. The book is You or Someone You Love, Reflections from an Abortion Doula by Hannah Matthews. This is WORT. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm Ali Maldro. Thank you for joining us, y'all.